Stay tuned now for AJC Live with Scott Richmond on 1460 WVOX. Shalom, and thank you so much for tuning in today to a special edition of AJC Live. Today's show honors International Holocaust Commemoration Day. My guest is a Holocaust survivor who has devoted his life to fighting for human rights and will be delivering a keynote speech this Wednesday at the United Nations. My name is Scott Richman. I'm the regional director for AJC, the global advocacy organization of the Jewish people. We are live from New Rochelle, New York, on the first and third Mondays of the month from 12 to 1. Today is a bonus edition of AJC Live because there are five Mondays this month. Call us with your comments or questions at 914-636-0110. A reminder that all AJC Live radio shows are podcasted and available in the AJC Live archive. Just visit the website, ajc.org forward slash Westfair, and click on the image of me with the WVOX microphone. There you will find links to all past AJC Live radio shows. There are 81 shows in the archive, and today is number 82. The most recent show honored Martin Luther King Jr. Day with a look at the issue of racism against people of color. The show offered a preview of the multi-faith prayer service that actually took place yesterday in White Plains called Facing Racism Together, Bearing Witness, and Bringing Hope. We heard from Cliff Wolf, the chair of the event and co-chair of AJC Westchester Fairfield's Interreligious and Intergroup Relations Committee, uh, as well as three of the major speakers at the event, Reverend Kimberly McNair, uh, Reverend Dr. Stephen Pogue, and Jeffrey Sir- Rabbi Jeffrey Sirkman. Uh, check out the podcast of this inspiring show at our website, ajc.org forward slash West Fair. On January 27th, 1945, the Red Army liberated the Auschwitz-Birkenau concentration camp. Sixty years later, in 2005, the United Nations declared January 27th to be International Holocaust Remembrance Day. The UN resolution declaring this urges every member nation to honor the memory of Holocaust victims on that day and encourages the development of educational programs about Holocaust history to help prevent future acts of genocide. Each year since then, there's been a major Holocaust commemoration event on the floor of the UN General Assembly, attended by top UN officials, diplomats, and more than a thousand other people. My guest today is Judge Thomas Bergenthal. He is a Holocaust survivor, a human rights lawyer, and much more. He will deliver this year's keynote address on the floor of the UN this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, it's a real privilege and honor to welcome Judge Thomas Bergenthal on uh, to today's show. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, Judge Bergenthal, I know that people did not talk about the Holocaust uh, in the decades after the war. Uh, is that perhaps why it took 60 years for the world to set aside a day to remember the victims of this genocide? I suppose, because, you know, when I came to the United States in 1951, uh, for 10, 15 years, nobody really wanted to know this thing about the Holocaust. So it's probably true that uh, after a while, and the experience and, and what the survivors contributed in raising the issue, that may have contributed to the fact that, that the U.N. acted and established a Holocaust Remembrance Day. Why do you think it is that people didn't want to discuss the Holocaust? Well, I, you know, you get different views. My my wife says they people didn't want to, when they spoke to me, they didn't want me to feel bad or to suffer. 
I was just mad about the fact that people didn't think it was worth discussing the subject. And that was true even in my family. In your family, it wasn't discussed that much? No, I, I kept trying to get my kids to... I wanted to talk to them about it. And rarely, if ever, got questions. Only when my mother would come and visit, they would ask her, but they never asked me about it. All right, I I introduced you as a human rights lawyer, but you're really much more than that. You spent a decade as a judge on the International Court of Justice, and before that, you served on the El Salvador UN Truth Commission and as a judge on the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, uh, including a term as that court's president. What what led you to focus on human rights? Well, I I would imagine that if you've survived the Holocaust... You feel some obligation to make sure that others don't have the same fate that befell my family and me. So that sort of started it. And then, of course, I realized that uh, I I wasn't very good in math or in sciences. Uh, My father had studied law, so I should study law. And then it became sort of natural that I would study international law and, and human rights and see what my role might be in it in terms of being able to help others. Uh, In in your book, which we'll get to a little bit later, you relay uh, many stories, many influences. Maybe you could tell the story of a man named Odd Nansen uh, as it relates to to your decision to pursue human rights law. Yes, uh, that was a a Norwegian uh, who was also in in the camp in Sachsenhausen, the last camp where I was. at that point, I was in in an infirmary. My some of my toes had been amputated because of frostbite, and he saw me, came by, and started to talk to me. And then after the war, I found him, and he found me. And uh, what struck me about the fact was that he had published a book and wanted to leave all the proceeds to. Uh, German refugees, and I asked him, why would you want to do that, considering what they've done to me and to all of us? And he said, well, uh, hatred doesn't help. We have to work to protect everybody's human rights. And that started to think, make me think about it uh, and about what I should be doing. But he was he really an influence on me throughout my life. Unfortunately, he died a few years ago. But a wonderful man. He really helped. He saved my life in in Sachsenhausen. And he uh, he wasn't Jewish. He wasn't Jewish. His father was the famous North Pole explorer Fritjof Nansen. And when uh, when the Nazis took over, when Quisling took over Norway, he gave a speech and said Fritjof Nansen, if he were alive today, would be a first number one member of my party. And my friend Nansen answered, my father was not a traitor to his country nor a hater of Jews. And, of course, he was immediately arrested and kept in the various camps for about three years. Hmm. All right. And, of course, human rights uh, is your connection to AJC. You sit on the administrative council of AJC's Jacob Blaustein Institute for the Advancement of Human Rights. Yes, and I was actually trying to remember today how long ago it was when I first started, and I must say it's so long ago <laughs> that I can't remember. That sounds like a good thing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, so tell us about your involvement with AJC 
and the uh, Institute for Human Rights? Well, uh, this institute, again, I, I don't remember when it was established, but we used to be, would meet uh, regularly and basically uh, try to assist human rights NGOs uh, around the world uh, financially and, and with advice. And, that, uh, and for many years we had quite a number of people who were experts on human rights, committed to human rights, as members of that committee. And it's always been very important to me. Right. Sounds like you were a very valuable member of that board and, and continue to be so. No, I, well, uh, I've always enjoyed being there. I first came on I, when Sidney Laskowski was still the executive director of the, of the committee, and it just continued. And I figure one day they'll forget me, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tell me about the field of human rights law. Um, I get the sense that uh, it's developed greatly over the years, per, um, mo most likely with the assistance of people like you. What was it like in the early years? Well, uh, it really begins with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the UN in 1948. Before that, as far as international law was concerned, there was no such thing as international human rights. Uh, there were some aspects that today are part of international human rights, but the subject itself was not taken because it was always assumed that the way a country treated its nationals was its own sovereign right, and nobody should be meddling in it. And it wasn't really with the beginning of the Universal Declaration and the UN Charter that the idea of human rights as a subject of international law uh, came into being. And in the U.S., we, we really didn't start teaching the subject for many, many years afterwards. Uh, my Harvard Law professor and I published the first casebook on the subject for American law schools, and that was in 1973. Uh, so when you went to law school, you didn't study international human rights law per se? No, I did not. What, what was your specialty? Well, uh, I, you know, it was just a general, I, I went to law school like every law student, and I, I took, uh, I was at NYU first and took uh, one or two international law courses, and then I went to Harvard and just spent the entire time I was there, both for my master's and doctorate, studying uh, different aspects uh, of of international law and getting a much better sense of what was happening in the human rights field. We will get back to uh, Judge Bergenthal in a few minutes after our break. You are listening to the AJC Live radio show on WVOX 1460 AM, a Whitney Global Media station. This is Scott Richmond, the local director for AJC, coming to you live from New Rochelle, New York. Uh, as I said, I'm speaking with Judge Thomas Bergenthal in honor of International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Call us with your comments or questions at 914-636-0110, and I will put you on the air. It's time for commercial break, but stay tuned for more of AJC Live. Let's return to AJC Live with Scott Richmond on 1460 WVOX. We are back with AJC Live. I'm Scott Richmond, the Westchester Fairfield Director for AJC. Call us with your comments or questions at 914-636-0110 on today's International Holocaust Remembrance Day event show. Uh, I'm speaking with renowned jurist, Holocaust survivor, law professor, and human rights expert, Judge Thomas Bergenthal. Judge Ber Bergenthal will be uh, delivering a keynote address at this year's Holocaust Remembrance Ceremony at the United Nations this Wednesday. 
Uh, just before the break, uh, you were mentioning that you had written really the first uh, international human rights law textbook uh, with your professor uh, at Harvard Law School in 1973, uh, and uh, you had gone on to write a book called uh, International Human Rights uh, in a Nutshell some years later. So really, you, you were creating the, uh, the law around this. Yes, actually, when, when I started to teach international human rights law, uh, I was at the State University of New York in Buffalo at the time. There were only three of us teaching the subject in American law schools, Professor Sohn at Harvard, Professor Henkin at Columbia, and I. And now I think most American law schools teach the subject. So I went to law school in uh, the early 90s. And, of course, not only was it uh, a subject, but I was uh, on an international uh, uh, human rights law journal uh, at my law school. So you've, uh, you clearly paved the way. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, let's take a step back. This, this could not have been easy. Uh, you were entering a field that barely existed, but really, I, you know, the odds were against you in a bigger way. You, you came to this country at the age of 17, Yes. I, I assume you didn't have the English language. You had many languages, but I assume not the English language. Uh, well, I, I had some because uh, after the war, when, when my mother found me, which was two years after the war, I, had, uh, I hadn't had no school before that. I had private tutoring for a year and then two years in, in a German high school, and that's where I learned my first English. Not very much, but I did have some. Okay, so you come at 17 with limited English, and uh, with very limited means, from what I understand, in December 1951. And in a little over a decade, you graduated Harvard Law School with an LLM and an SJD. Uh, I mean, that must have been an extraordinary journey in so many ways. Tell us how you managed that. Well, I, uh, I, well, I, I think like all of us who studied law, after, after the first year, it come, becomes natural. <laughs> Well, it, 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 it wasn't easy. I've, I had to look up a lot of words I didn't know, and I had to familiarize myself with a lot of sort of legal, it was legal terminology that most of my fellow students picked up along the way, which I didn't know. Uh, but it was very exciting. All right, but I think I'm asking, how does a, a, a brand-new immigrant to this country end up at Harvard Law School uh, so quickly thereafter? Well, what happened was that I, I first went to NYU and received my JD at NYU, and then continued on at Harvard. Uh, my obviously my my record at NYU was good enough to get me into Harvard, and I I'd gone to a college in in West Virginia, which was the only school that gave me a scholarship because all the others I applied to said I'd have to prove myself after a first year. Uh, to see whether I could really do it, considering that I'd had so little education before. But by the time I got to, to law school, I sort of felt like every American uh, high school graduate and college graduate, and it was all to be done. <laughs> to right. be, so I didn't think it was anything special, for me at least, doing it. Well, in this age where we, we talk about immigrants so much, clearly you're a, a great success story. Um, you, you wrote a book about your experiences during the Holocaust called A Lucky Child. Yes. Uh, it was published in English in 2009. It became a bestseller in Germany and was translated into a dozen languages. Uh, Including in China just recently. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yes. um, 
let's start with the title of this book. You, you endured horrific experiences during the Holocaust. What, why did you name your book The Lucky Child? Well, it, it goes to a fact when we were in Poland, shortly before the Germans invaded Poland, my, a friend of my mother's asked her to go with her to a fortune teller. And my mother went, and the fortune teller looked at my mother who had taken off her ring and looked, was very young at the time, and she said, well, you have a son. Things are not going to be very good for your family, uh, for which you really didn't need a fortune teller to tell you that in 1939. But then she said, but you have a, you have a son who's going to be a lucky child, who's lucky. He said it, she said it in German, which is ein, ein Glückskind. And my mother, throughout the search, because we were separated in Auschwitz in '44, she always believed that I was alive, even though everybody told her I couldn't possibly be alive. So I thought just to honor her memory and commitment, uh, that would be the right title. Unfortunately, she was no longer alive when the book came out. So... By the time she got this prognostication, your family was in Poland. Uh, you, you seem to be um, just ahead of the Nazis. They left Germany first, then they left Czechoslovakia after uh, the, the Nazis came into Czechoslovakia. And you were set to leave Poland. Uh, actually, on the day that the Nazis invaded, uh, September 1st, you were already on a train bound for England. Yes, um, and the train was bombed, and uh, that was the end of our escape to England. So, uh, do you think your mother really believed this uh, fortune teller? Very much so, because she, uh, she even, well, what also helped her, uh, a year in, after her liberation, she saw a picture of, of a British soldier with uh, leading five children, and she thought she'd recognize me. Was it really and, you? And that, of course, made it even stronger, her strengthened her belief, and it also enabled her to persuade many international search organizations to start looking for me. Because keep in mind, I was only 10 years old when I was in Auschwitz. I'm probably one of the youngest uh, survivors of the camp. And then in Sachsenhausen. So when I was liberated, I was just a few weeks before I turned 11. So the chances of my survival were very slim. But she still kept believing it. Everybody told her I couldn't be alive. All right, let's tell some more of the story. Um, when that train to England was bombed, you and your parents joined a line of refugees who were walking north to the Polish town of Kielce, where you remained for about three years in the ghetto there. Do you, do you remember anything from your time in the ghetto? Oh, yes, because there was, it wasn't, the ghetto was liquidated in 1942, and, and then we were, uh, after the ghetto was liberated, was liquidated, as they called it, ended up in a work camp. All right, you know what? We will uh, get back to that. Um, we are in uh, uh, 1939 um, uh, going to, uh, to Kilts, and we'll continue with Judge Thomas Bergenthal and, and his story. Uh, you're listening to the AJC Live radio show on WVOX 1460 AM, a Whitney Global Media Station. This is Scott Richmond, the local director for AJC, coming to you live from New Rochelle, New York. Uh, as I said, I'm speaking with Judge Thomas Bergenthal in honor of International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Call us with your comments or questions at 914-636-0110. It's time for commercial break, but stay tuned for more of AJC Live.
Let's return to AJC Live with Scott Richmond on 1460 WVOX. We are back with AJC Live. I'm Scott Richmond, the Westchester Fairfield Director for AJC. Call us with your comments or questions at 914-636-0110 on today's a show dedicated to International Holocaust Remembrance Day. I'm speaking with renowned jurist, Holocaust survivor, law professor, and human rights expert, Judge Thomas Bergendahl. Judge Bergendahl will be giving the keynote address at this year's Holocaust Remembrance Ceremony at the United Nations this Wednesday afternoon. Uh, just before the break, we were talking about... Um, uh, we, we left off really in 1939. Your family had... Um, walked uh, north from uh, the train that had been bombed that they were on, uh, which had been bound for England, and you ended up in the ghetto in a town called Kiltze. Uh, yes. So uh, you were saying uh, uh, in terms of any memories you have of your time in, uh, in Kiltze. Well, I, you know, the, it's surprising. Uh, uh, a child of about five, six remembers uh, things pretty well. At least I remember it, uh, not necessarily all details, but uh, we were first in the ghetto, which was liquidated, as I pointed out, uh, in uh, 1942, and then two other work camps before we were shipped to, to Auschwitz in, in 1944, in August of 1944. Well, so you were in uh, work camps. Were you put to work as a child? Well, uh, I was the only child that, that survived the selection that took place at the... Uh, in, at one of those small work camps. And uh, the way I survived it, it helped that I spoke both fluent German and fluent English because my father, I spoke Polish with my father, German with my mother. And um, I actually worked as an errand boy in one of the work camps and I, that I worked where I actually went to the commandant and said, I, I speak both languages, and I would like to be your errand boy, and he let me live. Hmm. And I, For years afterwards, to, to this day, I wonder why he let me live. Maybe you were a cute kid. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows, but it's because, you know, so many of us, more than a million of Jewish children died in the Holocaust, when you think about that. You know, probably it had to do also with your your German. Probably it was of a uh, of a caliber that he didn't encounter in uh, Polish territory. I, I suppose, I suppose. Uh, but uh, you know, the, when when you think of the number of children who died in the camp and what what loss it was to not just to to Judaism but to the world. Right, right. It, it's it's frightening. This is something that I've started to think again in preparation for my talk at the UN. So uh, one morning in July 1944, um, when you were 10 years old, you and your parents were sent to Auschwitz. Um, but I guess uh, you could say the luck stayed with you because you weren't immediately sent to uh, the gas chambers. Yes, and the reason for that was that since we, we came from a work camp, the uh, SS must have assumed that we, we arrived and all of us who were, had arrived on the transport were workers, that there would be no children or old people among us. And as a result, the usual selection which took place at the ramp in, in Auschwitz uh, was not held. Otherwise, I would never have gotten into Auschwitz. 
And that's why I always say that I was lucky to have gotten into Auschwitz, and of course, <laughs> that surprises people to when they hear me say that. You, um, you wrote in your book of a very powerful experience in Auschwitz that stayed with you and really informs your worldview. Uh, it involves the hanging of some people in the camp. Can you tell the listeners that story? Well, it's... Uh, that was actually in the in one of the work camps. It wasn't in Auschwitz. Ah, okay. okay. Uh, the the uh, three of them tried to tried to escape. They were captured, and to show us what happened to people who tried to escape, all of us had to march up to the to a court and they and watch the execution. The thing that has stayed with me from that execution was. He, he, they selected a friend of the person who was going to be hanged first to do to put the rope around his neck, and of course he the, the friend just couldn't do it. His hands were shaking, and the person who was to be hanged put his head through the loop and kissed his hand, and then jumped off the, the thing that he was sitting on, and that stayed with stayed with me more than. Many, many other things that I experienced, the, the courage and the love. He felt so much for the, the person whose hand was shaking that he, uh, he helped him. Yes. Yeah. Uh, after six months in Auschwitz, the camp was evacuated as the Germans were losing the war, and you were sent on a death march for three days, uh, and then on freight trains to take you to Sachsenhausen. Uh, concentration camp. How, how do you think you survived that death march? You know, I I really don't know because I, uh, when I went back uh, to Auschwitz uh, for the first time, uh, it, it was the, we, I did it because I was asked by a journalist to come at the same time on January of 45. Um, and it was so cold that, and I was so heavily dressed and I suddenly realized, how could I have survived this with just a thin concentration camp garb and a, and a little blanket? I suppose the will to live, on the one hand, and also there were two of my friends older than I, and we, in order to, not to be executed, whenever anybody sat down, they would shoot people, they would shoot them. We would run to the front of the column and then again, to the back and stand and wait and continue running. And it, I think the exercise, the three-day walk in that terrible Polish winter of January 1945, I managed to survive, but I lost some toes in the process. My hands and legs and feet were in frostbite. Tell us what liberation was like in April 1944. Yes. No, 45. Uh, 45, sorry, 45. Oh, you mean the liberation of Auschwitz? No, 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 no. The liberation of Sachsenhausen in April 1945. That's correct. Yeah. Uh, but tell us what that was like. Well, it, it, was, a, it was a... By that time, uh, most of the camp had already been uh, put on another death march or march because the Germans still believed they, w they would need more workers. I, I wasn't able to go on that march because I was in an infirmary uh, recovering from the, uh, from the loss of my toes from the operation. And so I, was, I could walk a little bit, and I was sent out to see whether, what was happening, because we could hear the sh shooting. And I walked out, and I saw 
where the usual machine gun stood on the balcony with the SS uh, manning it, and suddenly the SS was gone. The machine gun was still there. And then not long after that, a Russian uh, military car drove in, and the Russian said, uh, you're free, Voina kaput, you're free to go. And the question was, where was I going to go? So where did you go? Well, I walked out. First, actually, I went, like everybody else, we stormed the Nazi kitchen to get some food. And then uh, once we had done that, I just christened a Polish... So uh, we will get back to Judge Thomas Bergenthal. Uh, you are listening to the AJC Live radio show on WVOX 1460 AM, a Whitney Global Media station. This is Scott Richmond, the local director for AJC, coming to you live from New Rochelle, New York. Uh, I'm speaking with Judge Thomas Bergenthal in honor of International Holocaust Remembrance Day. Call us with your comments or questions at 914-636-0110, and I will put you on the air. Uh, it's time for commercial break. But stay tuned for more of AJC Live. Let's return to AJC Live with Scott Richmond on 1460 WVOX. We are, we are back with AJC Live. I'm Scott Richmond, the Westchester Fairfield Director for AJC. Call us with your comments or questions at 914-636-0110. On today's International Holocaust Remembrance Day show... I'm speaking with renowned jurist, Holocaust survivor, law professor, and human rights expert, Judge Thomas Bergenthal. Judge Bergenthal will be giving the keynote address at this year's Holocaust Remembrance Ceremony at the United Nations this Wednesday afternoon. Just before the break, uh, Judge Bergenthal, you were mentioning how uh, you left the camp, Sachsenhausen, in April 1945, and uh, you weren't quite sure where to go. So where did you go? Well, we were told, you know, don't go on the left side because the fighting is still going on go in the direction on the right side. And eventually I was picked up by a group of uh, Polish soldiers who heard me speak Polish, and they decided and asked me whether I was Polish, and I said, yes, of course. I wasn't going to say anything else. And they took me along, and I became a mascot of the Polish division that was fighting with the Soviet troops at that time. Eventually I ended up in a Jewish orphanage in, in Otwotsk, which is close to... Uh, to Warsaw, and it wasn't until uh, December of 1947, uh, that uh, 46, that I, my mother found me again, and I was smuggled out of Poland uh, to the uh, uh, through Czechoslovakia to the American zone and then the British zone in Germany. And did you ever? Uh, what happened to your father? My, my father uh, died in, in the Buchenwald concentration camp. He and I were together for a short period of time still in Auschwitz. Then he was shipped out, and then I was left alone in, in Auschwitz, and uh, he unfortunately died. My mother, fortunately enough, survived Auschwitz and Ravensbrück. Uh, we have a caller on the line. It's Mr. Cam. Mr. Cam, what's your comment or question? Yes, uh, good, um, whatever it is here, good afternoon. Uh, uh, my background is of the Hebraic uh, persuasion, and um, I taught in Australia and I taught in Germany, and I'm a teacher of history. And I want to wade into something uh, controversial here as to where the anti-Semitism came from. 
uh, and the, the, then the German twist on it with their technology, of course, and their deception, and, the, and we all know what happened there. Uh, I taught in a Catholic school in uh, uh, Australia, and I've been looking for these uh, phenomena, uh, and the, the phenomena of anti-Semitism uh, seems to be much stronger in the Catholic uh, culture, and uh, they make a, um, the, the basic problem here is the charge of deicide. Uh, okay, Mr. Kemp, so um, thank you very much for your question about where anti-Semitism came from that led to the Holocaust. Uh, we don't have so much time left, but uh, Judge Bergenthal, if you want to relate a little bit to uh, uh, where the anti-Semitism came from. Um. Well, I don't know where it came from. I, I only know that I experienced it, and we experienced it first in, in Poland, uh, initially, and then, of course, in, in Germany, where it was stronger, I, I must say that uh, my mother would always say that, that my, she and my father thought that, there were, that if there was a Holocaust or murder of Jews, it would come from Poland, and that didn't happen. It came from Germany and Hitler's Nazi ideology, uh, but that's really uh, all I can say on the subject. I'm, I'm a lawyer and not a historian. Uh, okay. Um... Now, you moved to the United States in 1951, as we said before, in December. Uh, but did your mother stay in Germany? My mother stayed in Germany. I actually came for only one year because uh, her brother lived in the United States, uh, in Patterson, New Jersey. And I came for one year because I wanted to see America. Uh, and then once I was here, I decided I wasn't going to go back. And my mother... Uh, who was not well at the time, didn't want to come to the U.S. because she had this notion that if she came to America, she would have to work in a factory. We could never talk her out of that. Mm. And that was, of course, due to the fact that her brother spent most of his life after coming to the U.S. in '38 working in different factories. So but, uh, I, I, had, I usually, well, during my college days and then law school, I always managed to get some free rides on, on ships going uh, to first to Germany and then afterwards uh, to Italy, where she had remarried and lived, uh, lived a very happy life. And then she would come and visit from time to time. I, I want to ask you just a, a question before we, uh, we end the show about the UN. Uh, the International Court of Justice, where you served, is, an, is an, essentially an arm of the UN and was established in 1945 uh, along with the establishment of the United Nations. Uh, and you also served for a time on the UN Human Rights Committee. We, we hear much, uh, uh, certainly from President Trump and, and uh, U.S. Permanent Representative uh, Nikki Haley, about the UN and its bias towards Israel. W what's your view on that? Uh, I, I really, uh, it, it's, it's obvious that a lot of countries are, are aligned against uh, Israel uh, at the U.N. for a variety of reasons. Uh, at the same time, uh, I think the U.N. is on the whole trying to do as best as it can a, a good job in dealing with human rights issues. Yeah, but again, I, I really don't want to get into all of these subjects uh, others might be better qualified than I. My own experience, I'd be glad to talk about my human rights work and my experience, but not about uh, some issues that are much too political for my narrow mind. Okay. I mean, certainly the UN uh, is, uh, is also, of course, a force for good. Um, and just in terms of AJC's work, 
Uh, AJC's Blaustein Institute for the Advancement of Human Rights created a manual on human rights and the prevention of genocide a few years ago. Uh, I, I'm, I, I know you're on the, the board of uh, yes. the Blaustein Institute. Were you involved with creating that manual? No, I was not. I, I knew about uh, that it was being done, and they had some very good people working on it. I think at the time when they started the work on it, I was already or still at the International Court of Justice where I couldn't do anything else. So I serve as a judge. In, uh, in two days, you'll deliver a major keynote address on the floor of the UN General Assembly in honor of International Holocaust Commemoration Day. Tell us about your overriding message. What, what do you want those gathered to take away from your story, your work, and really your, your wisdom gained over so many years and so many experiences? Well, basically what I'm planning to say is that, that uh, it, it's, it is critical that, we, we, that in order to prevent hatred and intolerance that has led not only uh, in the Holocaust but all over to genocides, that we have to start teaching children at a very, very young age about tolerance and about uh, their their commitment to helping people in need and not to kill people, not to hate people. Um, That's basically going to be the focus of, of my talk. Of course, a lot is being done, but not enough is being done in terms of uh, uh, making, trying to get countries to teach about the Holocaust and other genocides, and also to try to inculcate uh, the ideas in children, particularly that hatred is not something that should that they should be involved in. Hatred is not something uh, that we are born with. It's something we pick up, and consequently, we should be working on all the efforts we can to avoid uh, children suddenly become a, becoming intolerant and hating other people because of the way they look or because of the way they talk. That's basically what I'm going that's to say. That's a very good note to, uh, to, to speak about at the UN, and of course, a very good note to end the show on. My gratitude to Judge Thomas Bergenthal for sharing your insights, work, and story with us today, your ability to move forward from the Holocaust to help create a world where such tragedies do not happen to others is truly inspiring. A reminder uh, that he'll be speaking at the UN this Wednesday afternoon, and you can read about Judge Bergenthal's experiences in his memoir called A Lucky Child, published by Little Brown, with a forward by Ellie Wiesel. Uh, We have two very high-level events coming up this uh, Thursday, February 1st. AJC Westchester Fairfield will be hosting Connecticut Congressman Jim Himes for a town hall meeting at Temple Bethel in Stamford, beginning at 6.30. I just heard him yesterday on NPR, and I'm thrilled that he'll be giving us some time during... Um, uh, sometime this Thursday for an AJC program. And on February 5th, AJC CEO David Harris will offer a major community address at Temple Shalom in Greenwich beginning at 7.30 p.m. For now, that wraps up this edition of AJC Live. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can uh, reach the, uh, the podcasts of the shows. Uh, there are 82 shows, including this one, at our website, ajc.org forward slash westfair. You can also register for those events at our website. Uh, The next AJC Live radio show is scheduled for one week from today, on Monday, February 5th, from 12 to 1 p.m. Until then, this is Scott Richmond. 
wishing all of you peace. Shalom. <laughs>